Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is not right, and, and this is not how it should be. And I actually went to a counselor um, in high school who saved my life. So, and I didn't tell my parents about it. No one knew about it. It was a private situation for me. And he basically saved my life. He was my, I always had a little bit of anchor somewhere. If I knew that things were getting too crazy, a lot of people don't have that. So I feel like that's one of the reasons I'm still alive today. Cause I became very suicidal. I became very, just not, not well. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you, what makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, this week I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Anya Khan and hearing her story. Anya is a globally awarded, collected and exhibited artist, photographer, graphic web designer, as well as a teacher and an inspirational speaker. But this isn't what Anya was expecting her life to turn out like. 
Anya's home life as a child was deeply traumatizing and she was also mercilessly bullied at school. Nowhere was safe. And at her lowest point, Anya did attempt to take her own life. After school, Anya went to college and was studying to be a psychologist. But all of a sudden, she found herself in the midst of an illness that took away her ability to continue with her studies. Anya turned to art, and even when Anya was unable to touch paints or pencils due to the illness in her body, she moved into digital art and continued this journey in new and amazing ways. Anya has spent many years in search of answers to her chronic health issues whilst evolving into an artist, and her mission is now to help other trauma survivors to heal through art and colour and creativity with some amazing courses and offerings. Please join me in hearing Anya's story. Anya, you are a globally awarded artist, photographer and graphic web designer. You are a published author, teacher, inspirational speaker and the host of the Create and Inspire podcast. You're also an advocate for healing trauma through art and I know that you're offering some amazing courses on this. We'll talk a bit more about that soon. But as a child, I know you experienced a great deal of trauma. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on for you as a very small child? Sure. So the way that I grew up was in a very, very challenging environment. And I know now as an adult, that's not uncommon. Um, when I was younger, I thought I was very uncommon, thought that I, I was very alone in the circumstances in the early stages. I grew up, I had dealt with physical abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, and pretty much anything and everything in between there growing up. And a lot of that went on until my teens. So it went on for quite a long time. So some of it didn't, of course, but other things, you know, continued on into my teens. And then of course, later in life, they, things also kind of overlapped. And I'm sure you understand this where you don't recognize something as abusive until you have something to look at on the other side and go, Oh, that's not normal. I didn't know that wasn't normal. So that's kind of what I, I grew up with. Very challenging uh, dynamic with my parental figures in my life and really not knowing where I stood, didn't really feel very safe, felt uh, destabilized. And also knowing that in the environment I grew up with, and I just wanna be clear, is the people that raised me also grew up with severe dysfunction. So, you know, it, it's this long historical generational situation that was, you know, now into my world. So I don't like to place blame on anybody except for the fact that it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's a learned thing and we have to unlearn it. And how do we unlearn it until we know that it's not right, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask you about that. So how much do you think that your parents' childhood was affecting what happened to you. And you're saying that actually it's obviously going back through generations in your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Generational trauma and generational abuse and generational, you know, alcoholism, you know, generational dysfunction that it really took quite some time for people to, I think, even recognize that something was wrong because also and I'm sure you understand this too, 
that when we look at now, these kinds of traumas talked about, abuses talked about years ago when I was a child, we didn't often have child protective services coming to our house. You know, like that's not, it just wasn't a thing. No one was really calling on anybody because getting beat up by your parents or being emotionally neglected or abused by your parents was actually generationally common and normal. And so it wasn't something that was really looked at. And now kids are informed, younger kids are informed in school and other things like that, things that are wrong so that they're able to see that. We didn't know that, you know, we didn't know, you know, I had my best friend down the street, her parents acted just the same way. We were like, this is just, this is how it is. We grow up like this. Yeah. Um, And do you think you recognize that you were struggling? I mean, although it was normal, did you sort of feel like this wasn't right? I felt for sure that there were things that were wrong. And I think that really impacted my health later on in life because I was continually hypervigilant. And, you know, when you live in a world of constant hypervigilance or having to grow up quickly, you know, I was latchkey kid generation, you know, like fend on your own, find your own food, you know, that kind of stuff, things that, you know, it's fine. And I grew up very mature doing that but it also did not give me a sense of safety, a sense of security, a sense of, you know, healthy attachment. And I knew that um, I struggled with that. I struggled with attachment. I struggled with not knowing like where my position was in life. Like, am I a child? Am I an adult? Do I take care of you? Do you take care of me? kind of situation. So I, I always felt very uncomfortable. I didn't feel right. I felt very depressed. I had a lot of anxiety, like a lot of anxiety. And I started having panic attacks very early on in my life because of the amount of adrenaline and cortisol that was continually going through my body. So I felt, I felt pretty uncomfortable, but it wasn't until probably about high school, I started to really recognize the problem in all of it. And I think that also comes with how people develop from children to an adult, right? You have this sense of, we become aware of certain things as we develop. And as you start to become like 12, 13, 14, you start to see the world a lot differently than you do as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old, right? There's a big change in your development. And I think that's what happened. Once I started to reach the age of like 13, 14, I became very different in my head. I became a little bit more mature in a healthy, mature way, not a forced mature way, but like a good growth. And then I realized, oh, this is, this is not right. And and this is not how it should be. And I actually went to a counselor um, in high school who saved my life. So, and I didn't tell my parents about it. No one knew about it. It was a private situation for me. And he basically saved my life. He was my, I always had a little bit of anchor somewhere. If I knew that things were getting too crazy, a lot of people don't have that. So I feel like that's one of the reasons I'm still alive today. Cause I became very suicidal. I became very, just not, not well. Yeah. And it's amazing, isn't it? That that one person, because sometimes I think that kids just have absolutely nobody, right? So they have absolutely nobody to speak to. And it's terrifying when you think about that, you think that our homes should be safe and they should be a place where we feel a degree of safety and love. And mm-hmm. the fact that 
so many kids have not one single person to talk to that you found this one person and what did that person do for you were they explaining your situation or was it just a a way for you to download what was happening or what was that situation that's a good question so it was really being seen and heard you know because when you're a kid and you speak up a lot of people don't see or hear you and that that's something right now in education they're really trying to work hard at not like there's a authoritarian figures, you know, like kids have voices, they have things to say, and we need to listen to what they have to say. And at that point, I hadn't really had a voice. I, like they talk about, for instance, like younger girls where, you know, grandpa wants to hug and touch, or they're forcing their child to like kiss and hug an aunt or kiss. And it doesn't have to be a male person. It doesn't matter. It's like you have autonomy over your body. Right. And when I was younger, there was no autonomy. Like if somebody wanted to hug me and kiss me and touch me, you know, it's like you, you, you know, you follow the adults. And I feel like in that relationship with that counselor, which I actually reached out to him a couple of years ago to let him know how much he impacted me. It was that he heard me. He didn't question me. He actually didn't make me feel like I was wrong. I think he understood that like, even if my perception wasn't right, like even if I was mishandling what I was experiencing in my head, he wasn't going to make it out that it wasn't like that. He was going to hear me find out what I, what I was experiencing and then address it however he felt like he needed to address it. But I asked him not to talk to my family. I asked him to please just keep it between us because I didn't feel safe to, to share that. And he never actually went past those boundaries because there wasn't at that point, there wasn't a lot of major safety issues because during that time is when my parents were separating. So there was a separation and it looked like things were going to get safer. So he didn't actually interject, which was nice. So being seen, being heard, being validated, especially by a male, which also kind of shocking to me, you know, it wasn't a woman I grew up feeling that women are more nurturing, which is just naturally something we understand, you know, not that men can't be nurturing, but often, you know, we gravitate towards women as nurturers. And so to have a a masculine person in my life make me feel safe was really another level for me of like, oh, men can be amazing too, just as much as women, you know, that whole gender thing leveled out for me. And I, I wasn't scared of reaching out to safe men anymore, which was great. Yeah, absolutely. And what a relief though, that what a relief to be able to sit and speak to somebody in that safe environment. It's just like, yeah, I can just sort of feel that, you know, it's like, because there isn't anybody else there, is there? There's just this one person and that, you know, that, And I think that's the problem and a lot of kids don't want to share stuff is because they think, well, they're going to be dragged into somebody's office and their parents are going to be there. And I've heard it on this podcast, you know, people have shared something and then all of a sudden it's been told to their parents and it's a nightmare. So just having that is, is, um, it's like a real little turning point in your life, I think, isn't it? I don't think I'd be here today if I didn't have that at that, at that crucial part in my life, like every time I think about that, it literally makes me want to cry because I could have taken such a different direction. If I didn't have that secure attachment with somebody, if I didn't feel the safety with somebody outside of my family, 
right? Like somebody, because it's, it's easier to deal with attachments in your family, but then to know that there's somebody outside of your family that is actually like willing to, in a way, advocate for you, even if they're not interjecting was super huge. Like, I really don't feel I'd be as emotionally um, solvent. I don't feel like I would have grown in the way that I did without having that platform to jump off. He gave me that 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 launching pad to really be, have a pretty decent life. And we need that. It's one of the reasons why like podcasts like yours and you know other platforms where people are working with people, they don't understand the impact one episode can have, one connection can have. I mean, it can change somebody's life permanently to a better space. Yeah. Which is huge. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's absolutely true. So you mentioned there that your parents were just getting a divorce. Did that change your situation? No. No, no, it didn't. That was super challenging. I think, you know, divorces, it can be great. You know, it can be really wonderful for families to make that choice because sometimes it's better that way than just staying together, right? Because sometimes people just stay together for the kids and then it's, you know, it's just worse, but it really didn't change a whole lot. It's the relationship was still there. There was still a lot of issues between them. You know, I have siblings. There was a lot of issues between visitation and all. It was just a lot that was going on. And the great thing about it for me though, is I was older. I was 14, 15 years old. I was starting to like have a job and be outside of the house. And my brother and sister were eight and 11 years younger than me. So there was a really big difference between my ability to kind of disappear because I could hang out with friends or I could go to a sleepover or I could go to a job or, you know, I could make myself disappear a little bit more than they could. So it was better for me, at least in that circumstance. And I also had a better relationship with like school, for instance, like growing up, you know, not only was I having that problem at home, I was also the odd kid at school. So I was being bullied mercilessly through junior high up till the middle of high school. So I finally kind of relieved that circumstance as well as the family situation. So I was able to kind of move into a better, a little bit better space mentally and be able to connect with healthy people. And that's, I have so many different friends back then who had really, really stable parents and great people that I, you know, would latch onto and, you know, recognize that, oh, there's safe people and there's good families and people care about each other. I mean, all families have their drama. That's just life, but there's extreme levels versus, you know, normal dysfunction. Yeah. And so you're going through your teen years. What do you think was the lowest point for you in your teen years? I think the lowest point for me was getting bullied to the point of trying to kill myself. So I was being bullied pretty badly. Um, you know, I, I, it went to the extremes of people spitting on me, pushing me down. I was odd. I was weird. Like now I'm, you know, older. I like my weirdness. Like I'm totally fine with who I am. But at that point I was really oppressed by my family, right? Already. I couldn't express who I was. And then I'm odd and awkward because I'm being abused at home. And then I'm going to school and I'm being abused at school. 
So I'm literally just like getting hit at all, all sides of it. And I pretty much decided that I was going to kill myself. And I wrote a letter to my best friend and I took a, and this is obviously um, trigger warning for anybody who's listening, but I broke a glass in my room and I tried to use the glass and my family found out about it and I got in some really big trouble. I ended up having to go to work with one of my parents after school every day for like two months. I couldn't, I had to go sit somewhere until 6, 7 p.m. at night. I couldn't go anywhere because no one could trust me to be alone. So that wasn't, that that didn't help it. Like it wasn't actually therapeutically, I don't know, supportive. It wasn't like, well, why'd you do that? Or let's get you some help. It's like, we're just going to punish you. And so, you know, that was probably one of the lowest points. And at that point, I think you understand most people at that age don't understand that doing the act of committing suicide is permanent. A lot of people who are thinking that in those moments think, oh, people are going to miss me. And like, you're going to get some type of feeling from that because they're, you're going to see them miss you because you're, you know, you're obviously not developed enough to understand. Like when you're gone, you're gone. You don't come back. And I wasn't there. I thought, oh, people are going to miss me. And, you know, maybe they'll care. Maybe the people at school will feel bad. You know, who knows? But I'm glad that I, I'm glad that didn't go as far as I could have. I feel very lucky for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, it's just terrifying when you hear that you, you've got it coming from all sides. There's just no support whatsoever. It's you're going to school and it's hell. You're going home, it's hell. And there's just no relief from that. And oh, it just breaks my heart that that's what you went through. And yeah, it's just, it's just very hard for kids in those situations, isn't it? Where there's just absolutely yeah. nobody. And that's, that's your only, that's the only thing that you can feel. And then on top of all that, you get get punished for doing it. You know, like it's just, it's just, yeah. it's just, oh, there's just so much of a lack of any kind of understanding about anything in the people around you at that point. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's terrifying for kids going through that. So you got through that situation and sort of find yourself moving more outside of your home and your maybe then going on to do some study. Is that what happened next? Yeah, I decided that I wanted to know why my family was crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, why, why the dysfunction was there, why people behave that way. What could I do to maybe help them, you know, and help myself? And so I really had this, this desire to want to be some form of a therapist. I was like, I just need to like, gain as much information as I can, because I don't want people to hurt like me. Maybe I can help my family. Maybe I could do something to impact the world in a positive way. And as I started moving into that area of my life, I was very excited about it and it didn't go very well. In a very early, early stages of being in college, I started to have terrible health issues. And as I went to doctors and tried to get answers, I was really forthright with my childhood experiences. I was like, listen, I understand that some of this could be impacting me. 
but there's something physically going on on top of something mental. Yes, I have PTSD. Yes, I have anxiety. I definitely am a little OCD, you know, but there's something more. And the problem with being really self-aware, it actually didn't do me any good. By being really open about that, I was automatically categorized as having mental health to get you an item in my past, like, you know, for the flu or whatever, I reacted poorly. So I had no interest. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And so that's what I dealt with for numerous years where I just kept also being invalidated by the medical world. So in that, you know, right now, you know, I'm 43 years old. I only got my first diagnosis three years ago and my second diagnosis two months ago. And so I've been fighting to be listened to and be heard for almost 18 years. So yeah, that just kind of re-injured, you know, that injured that adult situation, you know, or, or the, the childhood situation with adults in my life, not listening to me, you know, not validating me and not hearing me, which is kind of a big deal when you feel like you're decently articulate. Like, I feel yeah. like I'm decent, you know, not, I don't mean like currently, I just mean at that point, I felt I'm decently articulate. I'm, I'm explaining to you what I know. I have some type of education behind this. You know, I've been told by therapists for a chunk of my life, I'm pretty self-aware. Why are you not hearing me? And so that, that, and it didn't matter how I would bring it to the table. It didn't matter how I served it. I was just constantly like, well, you've had a bad childhood. So it must be that. And there is a correlation with that. I mean, if you look at the ACEs score, and I don't know if you've ever heard of ACEs, which you probably have, you know, it's adverse childhood experiences and they look at them in, in from one to 10, there's 10 of them. And the more ACEs, more adverse childhood experiences out of those 10 you have, the more likely you'll have cancer or you'll have heart disease or you'll have severe anxiety or, I mean, the list goes on and on. And so, yeah, there was a true correlation with my child abuse, with my health and mental health issues, but it wasn't the, it wasn't only that, you know, there is a pure medical issue here. It's actually a genetic disorder that took them almost 20 years to figure out, like, I'm not BSing you, like there's something going on with my body. Could you help me? You know? Was the 20 years because they didn't have the, the science to be able to tell you that? Was it The disease has been known since the 70s. Right. Wow. But, but I'll say this, though. The disease itself is complicated, and it usually takes, on average, 14 years for diagnosis by onset of symptoms, not as of being a 14-year-old person or 14 years of your life. It's after you see the onset of symptoms it's usually about 14 years based on the fact that it's a multi-organ and multi-system disease. And so you continually find issues and then they rectify themselves. And then you can't, you can't trace it because it, it affects your heart. It affects your lungs. It affects your digestive tract. It affects your brain. It affects your skin. It affects all your joints. So it's really hard like to pinpoint it. But I do feel like if I was heard and actually listened to, and actually somebody went a little deeper than that, that maybe they would have come across it a little bit sooner, but I'm also not a doctor, right? Like I can't, I can't judge that profession, but it is harmful when people continue to tell you that this must be in your head. 
when you clearly know there's something wrong with your body. I mean, I went down to the point of being on a feeding tube formula because I couldn't assimilate food anymore. And they kept putting on my medical thing and I had to have it reversed that I had anorexia. And I was like, I clearly don't. I love food. You know, I just can't assimilate food. So, you know, and it took all the healing to where I'm at today with real, was really without much medical intervention. It was mostly me having to do the work because no one else would do it for me. So it was a very lonely, lonely road. Even family and friends and people around me started to not believe me and started to question me because medical keeps telling you nothing wrong with you. You know, it's like the boy who cried wolf. So then that also feels invalidating. But when I got my diagnosis, I was like, yay. Like it felt very, very good. And then the most recent one, which is the real root of it all, it felt, it, it was just amazing. Like it felt like, look, I haven't been lying. I have been telling you the truth. And I called um, all of my previous medical doctors from another state that I lived in. And I let them all know. I said, this is what happened to me. You need to pay attention to this, you know, so you can look out for it in other patients because no one should have to suffer like me or anybody. You know, I see people with my disease who've gone, you know, into, you know, 50 years of not having a diagnosis. So, I mean, I have a long thing here, but it's not as long as some people. Oh yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? And we do rely so much on the the system that's in place and when you get lost in that system you're just lost I mean just myself having had chronic health issues over the years you do end up just becoming a detective yourself and just trying to solve right. everything because you just told oh it's just this and and you know that it's not that I mean in the end for me it was it was all just coming from I'm sure my trauma and from my head and sure. I just didn't have any idea about that so it's yeah it's just pretty damn confusing I think and if doctors didn't segment it you know like that's the other thing is that there's a segmentation in the medical world like if it is mental health it's not physical right like yeah. you need to go see a therapist it's like yeah but if you go to a doctor the first thing they should be checking are you sleeping right are you eating right you know what are you doing for your mental health you know is there trauma like there should be these automatic check-ins not just symptomatically looking at you and wanting to throw a pill at you, right? Yes. And yeah, that is true. My child abuse did have a great effect on my health, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a health problem that exists. And it doesn't mean on the opposite end of it, that if I work through my trauma, I won't feel better or maybe have a better life, but it's probably not going to go away. Now, I'm not going to magically make it go away. I can improve it. It works both ways. It's just, they segment things you know and they're like they're either this or that it's like no it actually all really works together yes and I think it's going to be a while before that changes unfortunately because they're just going down their path there and yeah it's hard to see that it's going to change but I, I can see people popping up in the world who are looking at it differently and I guess it's just yep. going to take time isn't it before those things are a bit more obvious to everybody yeah, so absolutely. you were living with with this poor health, when did your love of art come into the picture? Um, I had always been doing something artistic. You know, I'd always been like writing music or drawing or, you know, whatever. That had always been something that really soothed me as a kid. 
while I was going through um, experiences, I would, you know, sing and write songs and make up stories and write books. I had these little books that I would create. And later in life, when I ended up getting really sick, I ended up not being able to work, which is really hard for me because that's one of the things I suffer with as a person is I have a, a workaholic kind of mentality. Like I love to do a lot of things. And obviously when you're sick, you're limited. So then when I would be down for long periods of time, when I would try to do things, I would go at it like full bore. And then that would wear me out and drop me. So the I was going back and forth like that all the time. But art really showed up pretty quickly as the health problems started to show up. Really, probably about in the early, in my early 20s, I just had to find a way to express myself or do something. So that's when I started to do like digital collage and, and manipulation and actually started using myself as a subject because I was dealing with a lot of obvious trauma and situations. And I was trying to work on like, maybe that's it. I'm going to work on writing my poetry and getting all this stuff out. And then I had some random human being by the name of Roger um, show up at a little park one day. And I didn't leave my house very much. It was like once in a lifetime situation, but we had a little tiny park by our house and they were having this little art thing for kids. And I was like, I want to go. So, you know, I was like the only adult there like drawing on the thing, but I was like, it just made me feel good. And he wanted to take a picture of me and I was automatically turned off by it. First off, I was like, who are you? And why, you, you know, this was, you know, almost 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, like, it's not like he had a camera phone. I mean, he had this like big, huge lens and I'm like, why are you taking pictures? And he's like, oh, I'm a reporter, you know, for the local paper, a photographer, not a reporter, but a, a photographer, you know? And he's like, would you, can I take your picture? Because this is odd to see an adult with kids here. Like, it's nice that you're here. I said, okay. And so he took my picture and we ended up having a friendship. I shared a lot of my work with him and he's the person who encouraged me to get my art in galleries. And he's the one who suggested, again, a chance meeting of somebody randomly in a park, which I've had a lot of these in my life, like life-changing random meetings of people. And I don't go out a lot. So that's, you know, it's not like I'm traveling the world and I'm meeting all these people. It's like these chance encounters. And that's when I started putting my art into shows. And it was really difficult because the art was very dark in those stages. Now it's changed dramatically. Not that it doesn't have a dark edge to it, but it was a lot darker. And he, you know, was like, you should do this. I was like, it's like a visual journal to me though. Like, I'm not quite sure I want to put that on a public wall. And when I did, it was, it was a tough pill to swallow because a putting something out public, you know, that you're going to get feedback you like, or you don't, you just have to be open to that. And I got a lot of negative kickback. I had people make fun of my work right in front of my face. They didn't know I was there. And let me preface that. It's not like it was somebody standing there making fun of me directly, but I was standing there and I heard somebody say, you know, that work, that girl must be crazy or that person. I don't remember if they gendered me, but you know, that person must, you know, have had a crazy life. And I'm like, yes, I did. You know, It was very interesting, but it was, it was, it was painful at times. But the other end of it is seeing people respond in a really therapeutic way was why I kept going. I had a woman um, actually start crying in one in front of my one of my pieces at one of my first shows. And I couldn't even speak to her. I ended up having to like leave the room and go somewhere else because it was emotionally a little too much for me at the time. But I also recognized that I had created some impact on that person and it felt right to me 
And so that's why I kept going. Cause I was like, I I'm voicing something that's important and people can connect with it and all the negative I can deal with. I've dealt with enough in my life that I can just ignore that. It hurt. I'm not going to like put a fake thing up. Oh, I was fine. So that's not true. It sucked. But the benefit outweighed the opposite. You know, it totally outweighed it for me. Yeah. And that's how I got into the art. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yeah. So what were you actually putting out? Like, what sort of art was it? Sure. It was um, paintings of, it was usually portraiture or some type of um, you know, people engage together. So a good, like a good descriptive one would be like, I have one where I'm, I'm, I use myself a lot because I didn't have access to other people who could, I don't like to use the model, but subject for me. And so like, I have this one where I'm sitting out in this like field and, um, I use back then I used a lot of like vintage hairstyles, kind of old school, like forties kind of vintage for me. And she's sitting there in like a forties outfit and she's got a skull up on her shoulder with her head leaning against it and she's holding it. And that had to do with a significant loss in my life of somebody I really cared about. And so there was a lot of like skulls or, you know, things where they dealt with loss or there was some political stuff that one, it's interesting that one of the pieces I did, um, what was it, H1N1 back in what, 2009. So I did a, a vintage, a woman in a vintage outfit where it had a, what do you call it? The optometrist. Optometrist, yeah. <laughs> the glasses. I think people that do the glasses, you know, they have those. <laughs> yeah, you know, they have those things that you look at on the wall that have the letters, right? Like a big A and then they go smaller and smaller down. So on the wall, it has some hidden words about like war and pandemic and all of that because we were going through a really challenging time. And then there's a girl sitting on like this bench in a doctor's office with that behind her. And she's kind of looking while somebody's giving her a vaccine in her arm and she's smoking a cigarette at the same time. Oh, wow. So it was, you know, a little bit political. So I kind of went and did the, they were subjects that had to do with loss, um, 
you know, abuse, adversity, some politics. I'm not a big, I, and I want to clarify this. I'm not a big political person. I'm not at all like a political artist. That was just a moment, a moment, a moment situation for me, but I don't go in that direction. I try to stay out of politics much as possible, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. especially now. <laughs> yes. Yes. So did you move out of your study and then fully into art? Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah, I, I kept going back and forth. I would try to then like go back to school and then I would go for a couple of months. And it wasn't actually in physical at that point. Obviously now we have a lot more distance learning than we did then, but I tried to do distance learning from time to time. I ended up going for my bachelor's, didn't get it completed, but I never really got where I wanted to go with it because I kept being too sick. And then I would I would just be like, oh, I'm not going to pay for this because the way that they, I would have to pay for it back then was you're paying, you know, per semester. And then if I didn't finish it, then it's like, I'm wasting my money. And so I never really knew with my health where I would be. So I stopped, stopped and started a lot. And then I was just like, I got to let it go. Because for me, I grew up thinking, and, and this was put into my head, whether or not it was a family situation or not that art is not a career. I never even thought about it, right? Like it wasn't even something that even came to my mind. Like I could be a graphic designer. Like, no, it's like, you need to have an education. You need to have a degree. You need to have like a good job. And so I think that's why I kept getting pulled back to that. Like I need to have a degree. And it's like, I finally ended up being resolved with myself and saying, you know what? I actually don't need a degree. I don't need a degree in anything. I have a degree in living life and I've clearly lived a very interesting and odd one. So I'm just going to use that to my advantage and go with that. And I still struggle with that to this day. I still, not even but a month ago, was like, maybe I should. And I'm like, I'm 43 years old. I don't really have the time. I've got like 40 projects going. Like, what am I going to go to school? Don't, can't do that. But it still pulls on me to be that overachiever, to have something on my name that says that I've accomplished something when, when really, what does that matter? Not that degrees aren't beautiful and wonderful, and I commend anybody who has one. That's that's a great feat, but not everybody needs one to be successful or make an impact in the world. So that's kind of a fight I had. And then having to go like, I'm an artist. You know, it's like, wait, what? That was that's still a thing. Like, I'm an artist. Okay. It's not what I expected. It's not how I thought my life was gonna turn out, but I've never been happier to yeah. be what I am. And I feel like the journey that I took is probably the journey where I needed to go. And if I was a therapist and I didn't do art and I went along that other path, I'm not sure I would have been happy. I think I've always been creative. I always have looked at the world very different. I've always just kind of gone my own direction, my own way. And I don't deal well with people telling me what to do or being in like what I've heard from a lot of my therapist friends, because I have a lot of therapist friends, is that there's just so much bureaucracy around it. And I want to do things the way I want to do it, you know? hundred percent. And it's so (laughs) funny, isn't it? Like, because you are doing such amazing things, but there's just this construct around us that says, oh, unless you've got it on a piece of paper, you're not successful. It's just crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's just obvious that you were born to do what you're doing now. It's, um, oh, it's crazy that we still think that we have to have a piece of paper. When you're 
when you're painting, it's really also your healing, isn't it? That's what you're doing when you're painting. Is that, I mean, obviously that's why you sort of started. Is that how it still is for you? Are you still healing through your art? You know, it's a really interesting question because it was always like that. And there was one thing about it that was always hard for me is that I was not allowed to actually touch physical paint or touch, you know, uh, colored pencils. I couldn't touch any medium. So all of the art that I did that I showed in galleries or that I showed in, you know, museums or whatever was all digital. And to actually make any sort of success as a digital artist starting back in 2005 was kind of unheard of, which was pretty cool. But that's not who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted, you know, that's where I had started. But I became allergic to everything and I couldn't. So the ironic thing is, you know, it took on a life of its own. You know, I, I became a career artist where I was showing in a lot of galleries, still very healing. But last May, I, as I said, I got that first diagnosis three years ago, about a year and a half into that, I got the right medication and I was able to touch things again, slowly. Wow. So I brought in colored pencils in, in May, not this May, it was in May the year before. And then November last year is when I started with watercolor. And I still, to this day, like have a tube of paint in my hand. And I'm like, I can touch this because when you create and not that there's anything wrong with digital art. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I've been a digital artist for years. I'm a graphic, graphic and web designer. I have zero problem with digital. I know a lot of galleries and people do, it's not art. I don't, but for me, knowing that my direction with my art was based on my inability to do something, you know, my disability to now like gain that has been so huge for me. And it almost started my career over completely because the work is completely different. You know, galleries and people I work with don't know what to do with it because it's not the same. So I'm going through this complete and utter like revival of who I am, which correlates, you know, with this obvious second diagnosis a couple months ago to like, I, I now know the root. And that's part of the reason why I launched into this project you know, that we'll talk about later um, because that root system's there again. Like I came back to my roots. My roots were never to show in a gallery. My roots were never to get into magazines and publications. It was great and it was great to check it off. And I feel super accomplished with my life to be a sick person and have made the journey that I have. But the true essence of everything I do is based on healing myself and helping other people. And that's really where I'm at. And so I return back to that space. The way that I honored that is by starting a project last November where I called for people to submit pictures of themselves. And for the next six months, I dedicated painting people's portraits in my new medium for free out of the pool that submitted to me. And then I would send them the portrait for free. They could donate to me if they wanted what they felt you know, they wanted to donate. And if they didn't, I didn't want to leave people unable to be a part of it. I wanted the, and I just randomly pulled from the pool. And so I think I did like 30 of them. I took a break recently in the last two months because it was a lot. 
but I learned a lot and I'll probably revisit it again. It may be just a long-term project that I come back and forth with, but that's how I, I stayed connected. And was like, okay, I want to learn how to paint faces better. I want to, I want to connect to the community through my healing. How can I, how can I have that connection? Cause I need that, you know, with COVID, I know a lot of people's lives have changed. Mine hasn't changed very much. My doors were only opening about a year before COVID happened. I had only started to not have to wear a mask. I'd only started to be able to go into places because of um, not being afraid that I might have a severe allergic reaction. So for me, being stuck in right now and having to kind of distance myself in the world is easy for me because I've already done it for almost 20 years. I feel bad for those that have it. So I felt like I needed to make a community connection. I needed to find a way to bring joy to people and bring, bring something to the table that was interesting and taught me something, made people feel good. And it was great. Yeah, absolutely. And what a beautiful project. And how lucky are all the people who got into that bunch to have their, their photos change into art. I have actually seen some of those and it's, it's beautiful. Oh. Thank yeah, you. it's beautiful. So I feel like when you were a little kid, you had no voice and your art is really your voice. Do you feel like your voice is so much stronger now in the world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And I feel like it's kind of loud and obnoxious sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of catching up and I feel like, you know, I wish... I wish I could do more. I feel like I'm very limited with my disorder on what I can do, but I do try my best. I feel very lucky to have platforms where I have a lot of followers because I feel like at that point, I'm able to really nurture other people or try to find a way to connect rather than, oh, it's about me. Oh, it's about me. Look at me, look at me. Like even on my Facebook page, I have like 380,000 people who follow me. And every Friday I do a Friday art share because I feel like, why am I going to use the page just for myself, right? Like, what's the point, right? Like, how do we get people involved so that they can share art and other artists can see their art? And, and so, you know, I always feel like I need to be a voice for myself, but it's also like this intrinsic need to be a voice for the masses. Like, how can I let other people be seen? How can I help other people feel valued? feel worthy, you know, all of those types of things. Cause I just, I guess when you experience such adversity in your life, and if you're able to kind of come to the other side of that, where you're not in complete survival mode anymore, which I spent a lot of years in that, then it's like, how can you not light a candle for someone else? How can you not do that? You know, and there's people who can, I want to be clear. There's people that have been worn down so much. And even if they do get better, they don't have the energy. You know, I want to be clear with that. And that's okay. You have to protect your energy and you have to do what is right for you. But if you feel driven and you feel so inclined and you have that energy, then yeah, then light, light that candle for other people, you know, try to find a way to do that. Yeah. And is that your way of helping people to feel less alone? Yes. The world is right now more than ever a very lonely, lonely place. There's a lot of people who are without homes, without family, um, haven't been touched or hugged or, you know, it's, it's really a hard, hard time. I feel that. 
you know, cause like I said, I've lived a lot of my life being abused, being picked on, being sick, you know, being alone, being not listened to. And, you know, I know people can be bitter from that, but I'm just not, I feel like all of that only gives me more fuel to be able to like really hear and listen, be able to uplift other people, be able to, you know, be the way to even step back and let other people do the thing. I don't have to be the voice if there's a way for me to be the platform for people to have a voice, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's knowing that there's so many people out there who are just like you, but what you've been through, there's so many people who are experiencing loneliness and unwellness and just so many of them I feel like yeah. the world is is such a lonely place right now how important has nature been in your life oh I love nature I'm obsessed with it I feel like ever since I was a little person I lived in it you know I'd make soups in the woods for my friends to eat and I loved making you know broomsticks out of big bunches of leaves and um, sticks and would dust the wooded area. I grew up around a lot of woods around my neighborhood. So I got to spend a lot of time around big, huge trees and like, it was just wonderful. And even now it's like in my studio, I probably have, I'm looking right now, I don't know, something like 25 plants or something ridiculous. And then my, my studio where I paint out it, this has this beautiful tree and a wisteria that grows over the winter, uh, over the window during the summer. And I have tons of birds that come visit me. So I have these jays that come hang out and I have crows that visit me in the backyard. And I have a little girl squirrel. I call her my little girl squirrel. So I love that. And I have to be careful, like going out and like hiking or doing things like that. Cause I have temperature situations and um, I gotta be careful with how much I exert myself. So I make sure that my environment around me, that I can spend some time in there because I feel like nature is so grounding for me, especially since I'm so attached to technology every day, you know, yeah. with doing web and graphic design, I need that earthy kind of feeling and I love it. I just, I love it. And I think it can be really healing for people if they're able to just go outside and just put their feet on the ground, even just sit and just listen just be calm, take a moment, because we're all so connected to technology. We're all moving so quickly. We're all, you know, going at the speed of time, trying to deal with children and this and that, you know, it's like, just take a breath. And I'm not good at this, why I'm saying it. I'm telling myself while I'm saying this, because it's something that I'm challenged with, you know, I love it and I need to do it more. You know, I need yeah. to take more time to just be, you don't always have to be doing. Sometimes you can just be, and it's okay to be whatever you are in that moment, uncomfortable, sick, scared, sad, just be, you don't have to be anything else, just what you are right now. Yeah, I love that. And we don't give ourselves permission to do that very often, do we? So it's mm -hmm. definitely something to learn. And apart from art and nature, are there any other things that have been really important in your healing? Animals. Yes. Animals. Yeah. Animals and having really amazing connective uh, relationships with people that have been like mentors to me. I've been really lucky to have met, like I said, random people. 
out of nowhere that have just created these amazing bonds that have kept me going. And they often are older people and they often pass away after, you know, numerous years of being in their, in their life. And so that's always challenging, but I've had, since I was probably 14 years old, somebody who's been kind of like an older mentor kind of come through my life. And it's not that I've looked for them or that I like, I need a mommy or a daddy figure. It was never that. It was always like the symbiotic reciprocal relationship where we both really needed each other, which was super exciting. And then pets. I just love, love, love my dogs. I don't know what I would do without having the unconditional love of a pet. I think it's great to have, um, you know, intimate relationships and friendships and whatever, but having, uh, I don't care if it's a pet fish, it doesn't matter. Having a, some type of pet really is this complete and utter, un, you don't have to explain anything. If you're upset, they're going to come and kiss you. I mean, you don't have to, you know, they're just, they're just there and then they care and that's it. There's nothing else. Just feed us, make sure we go to potty, you know, play with us a bit. And we'll sleep with you and we'll, you know, we'll be happy. I have one that sleeps up like by my head, like literally almost on my face. And the <laughs> other one is so needy. He cannot not touch me. Like I will try. He's so hot when I'm trying to sleep and I move him. And no matter what, he'll get up in the middle of the night and he has to like put his butt on me and like slide because he can't just like <laughs> lay close to me. He's got to like lay on me and then slide off. So he's like, you know, touching me as much as he could. So I have a very strong bond with them. I, I love them. And I think animals can be really healing for people. I really do. I think if somebody is lonely and they have the bandwidth, it's really great to get yourself a cat or, you know, find the type of pet for you. That's going to be okay. Dogs need a lot more attention than cats do. You know, they need to be taken out. They, they need, a, they're a lot more needy. Cats are very independent and they don't have the same kind of needs. So just kind of looking at what kind of pet might be best for you, but getting somebody to love you, it's nice. Yeah, you know, you don't have absolutely. to be lonely. It's so true. It's so true. I think I was quite resistant to getting a couple of pets. You know, my kids wanted them, but um, I was resistant because I thought, oh, it's another thing to look after, especially when they were younger. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got the kids and then it's and then you get the pets and you realize that they actually create this entire other universe of love, you know, that you, yes. you just kind of, oh my gosh, I should have done this so much. You know, <laughs> I should have done this years ago, but um, we, uh, we just love them so much. Anya, let's talk about what you're doing to help people with your art and the courses that you're doing for healing trauma because you're running some really beautiful courses, aren't you? Can you tell us about that? Uh -huh. Thanks. So after my secondary diagnosis two months ago, and I sought out that diagnosis because I was in a really good space, really healthy. And I felt like, yeah, I just want to know. It was not going to change much except for giving me knowledge. Um, once I kind of had that under my belt, I just felt like I had had a, a turning point. And this, this healing trauma creatively idea has been in my head for probably five years. And I didn't feel healthy enough to execute it. Meaning if I'm going to provide something for people that's healing, I, I don't want, I don't believe that I have to be hundred percent healed because no one is that's ridiculous. But I felt like I had to be healed at a space 
where the energy was enough to be there that it wasn't taking from my life force, right? Like one thing is uh, being a trauma survivor is people often want to overgive themselves to depletion. And we don't want to do that. One of the things that we learn as people who are trauma survivors is how to protect our energy. How do you take care of yourself? How do you put yourself first? How do you know what you can and cannot do to make sure that you're not depleting yourself? And so finally, I came to the space where I was like, I have the energy. I have the ideas. And I think I'm just going to jump in. I'm just going to do it. And I actually did a course, created a course for uh, someone else that was just art related. And so I had a pretty good run with making some other courses. And I thought, I'm just going to do it. And I came up with the logo. I went and bought the URL and I just jumped in because I'm one of those people. I don't have a lot of filter. I do. I calculated risk taker. Okay. A risk taker, but I'm calculated. I don't do stupid stuff, but I do do things that most people wouldn't do. And I just try it because I, you know, I've almost died a million times and I, I don't even, I still can't even believe I'm here right now. So you might as well just try. Right. And so I went ahead and I just kind of jumped in and it's been the first time in my life. And not that I haven't done a lot of other projects and things in my world, because I've done book projects and this and that, but this was everything. It was psychology, it was art, it was inspiration, and it was educational. And I was like, it's all there. And as I started to dig in, and I'm probably get really emotional here, I felt like I just hit it all. I finally found my place. I felt like I was always kind of searching for like, how do I, well, I want to do art, but how do I help? Well, I'll, you know, I'll make art courses, but that's not help. That's not doing the trauma thing. And then basically just putting it all together. And I was like, wait a second, I've been doing this since day one. As I started into what I had been doing art with, I was lecturing at Washington University School of Medicine in their mental health outreach program. I had been visiting my local community college and their psychology classes talking about bullying and overcoming child abuse. I mean, I'd already had been running that, that marathon already. And then it just came back to me and I was like, wait a second, I have this much history doing this already. How did I not, how did I not just arrive here a lot sooner? But I don't think I was healthy enough to. So I'm, that's where I'm at. And so the idea behind the program is to offer courses that help people heal through trauma in creative and supportive ways. And over time, we're gonna be expanding with other teachers. So it's not just gonna be me. I would like to have a platform where other people could come because I don't feel like I know everything at all. And it'd be great to have different people that brought things to the table, as well as I wanna expand it and do other things on the platform. But currently we have um, a third course coming out. Our first course is Explorative Emotion-Based Color Wheel. The second one is Rewriting Your Trauma where we talk a lot about the idea that you can use memories and rewrite them, which people don't understand. And it's a super cool thing that psychology is understanding about the brain. And then the next one is working on the tree of life, which is not the typical tree of life that we think about. And it was created by David Denborough. <laughs> it was created by David Denborough and by Nascazella. Nisubi Milu, and I'm probably completely messing up the names. So it's David, last name D-E-N-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, and it's N-C-A-Z-E-L-A-N-C-U, 
B-E-M-L-I-L-O. So both of these wonderful people came up with this idea. They worked together through the AIDS epidemic and they brought the tree of life for children who had lost family members to AIDS and tried to bring all the things to their life. Like, what do they have? And that's what the tree of life is. The idea of like, what do you have? What are your roots? What is your trunk? What are your branches? What are your leaves? What are all the things that you have? Because when you go through great loss, sometimes we forget that. So those are the types of courses that we're offering. There's going to be plenty of other different subjects, like somebody recently suggested um, environmental trauma. So people that are going through fires right now or have gone through massive hurricanes, you know, they've gone through quite a lot. I mean, we were very close to the fires here. We almost had to evacuate last year. It was pretty scary. So those kinds of things. So those are the, those are the kinds of courses we're working on. They're all self-paced. They're completely trauma-informed. They're very safe. They make sure that people know exactly what's happening. There's nothing shocking or, you know, we're not going to dig in super deep unless somebody is ready to do that. And we also encourage when doing the courses that, you know, you have a licensed therapist that you're working with or a doctor because we are not either of those. We're just there to provide educational resources to help people because there's alternative ways that we need to look at trauma. You know, talk therapy is great. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource, but just like the book, the body keeps the score says it's not just in our head. We keep it in our body and there's somatic therapy where we can do like movements. There's things like EMDR. And of course, you know, being creative is, is another really great way to tap into healing trauma without re-traumatizing yourself over and over again. Oh, wow. That all just sounds so amazing. So amazing. Where Aww, can people you. find you? Where can we find those courses? Sure. You can find them at healingtraumacreatively.com. Oh my gosh, guys, you've got to connect with Anya and her courses. If that resonates, it all sounds so amazing. Anya, you are such a wise and amazing soul. You're bringing so much beauty and light to the world with your art and your healing. You've truly taken that trauma from your childhood and turned it into something magnificent. Thank you so much for connecting with me today. I've loved every second of our chat. Oh, thank you too. I really appreciate the opportunity and I love what you do. Thank you for being there for people and providing your podcast and connecting. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at My Big Love Project. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique. And you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.